Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Foundation and the Get to College program, offering Mississippi families free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance to Mississippi students of all ages. More at gettocollege.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, April 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, two Mississippi institutions of higher learning team up to study young adults' attitudes and practices regarding the coronavirus. Then, civil rights advocates call for a change in the jury selection process. Plus, a nearly $12 million award is aimed at creating conservation jobs on the Gulf Coast as part of the Deepwater Horizon recovery effort. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Tougaloo College and the University of Southern Mississippi are partnering to conduct research on the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on young adults. The study, funded by the National Institutes of Health, is designed to learn how the coronavirus pandemic has shaped and influenced the lives of 18 to 29-year-olds. That demographic accounts for at least 37,000 of the state's COVID-19 cases since last March. Dr. Tracy Hayes is with the University of Southern Mississippi, and she shares more about the study's methodology and goals. The goal is to identify what young adults in Mississippi know about COVID and how they're how they've been coping uh, with the virus, and then look for ways to ensure that they're getting the proper information, that the messaging is structured so they there can be uptake and continued long-term behavior. I know you're looking for young adults ages 18 to 29. Why that age group? It was identified actually by the Mississippi uh, State <laughs> Department of Health Uh, in a June 2020 article that identified this group as the most at risk in our state. They had the highest numbers at the time, and that continues to um, be the case. Now, are the questions that you're asking the young adults 
uh, on the, in the past or present or future, meaning are you stressed out because of the pandemic or is it were you stressed out or do you anticipate being stressed out in the future? No, so, <laughs> so right now they're all current questions. So how are how are you being affected by COVID? Um, what, or I guess past and present, but uh, we want to know what they've done to date, how they first um, heard about it, and then what are they currently doing to manage the, um, you know, adhere to the behaviors and the practices that are recommended, and then what are their plans around the vaccination. So we're finding that some have already been vaccinated. How do they feel about that? What prompted them to be vaccinated? And for those that haven't um, made a decision, what type of information or what factors would move you to likely being um, someone that will get the vaccine? Or is this just something that you will not do at all? So we're still trying to understand what is motivating them, um, motivating their behaviors and practices surrounding the virus. When you're asking them about the vaccination, whether they've gotten it, are you trying to determine whether more education is needed uh, about the vaccine or just their feelings about it, whether they want to get it or not? Well, it's both. Uh, we want to know what their feelings are regarding the vaccination, but also what type of information is needed to ensure that they adhere to um, continue if the vaccination is required again. What type of information um, is needed to ensure that they stay engaged with the whole process, the long-term behavior, such as if they still need to wear um, their mask, if there's still um, a need in their environment to social distance until they have become vaccinated and what exactly um, are those motivators for moving them towards vaccination. Are you also trying to find out what their behavior was in the past, whether they have been social distancing all along, whether they've been wearing masks all along, whether they've caught COVID in the past and it may be because of their behavior in the past? Yeah, well, the great thing about the approach that we're taking as a mixed method, we're using focus groups as well as survey collection. With the focus groups, we are able to explore in-depthly how the COVID virus has affected them, whether or not they've had it, what they did to um, manage it if they did fall victim to it, um, what are some other factors in their environment, such as like their family having it and and what they've done to um, just kind of manage and cope with it. We're even finding out the fact that, you know, it's been very stressful on them, how it's impacting their work environment, impacting um, going to school. So the focus groups allow us to be very personal and get that in-depth information. And as I mentioned, the Department of Health reporting that African-American young adults are at greater risk of contracting and suffering effects from the virus. Will you or do you have more targeted uh, focus questions for African Americans among your study group? Well, the questions are more geared to that young adult experience. While we're focused on African Americans, um, we have had participation from outside the group. So, really, we're finding that the young adult experience um, from those that we're, we've talked to seems to be the same. It's a social um, consideration. 
the fact that they would be moving a, a lot more than older adults. And so that, that has been one of the issues. They can't be as stationary as someone that's not in that age group. So, so the questions are more focused on just being a young adult in the environment, but because we had access to um, and we saw that the data was showing that the risk was among African Americans or greater among African Americans. That's where the focus has been, but we have not eliminated any young adult who wants to share their experience. How many participants are you looking for? For the survey, we are looking for a minimum of 500. Young adults. And for the study group? And for the focus group, group. we um, have, we're targeting 200. So we've got a series of focus groups going uh, throughout May. What does. We've had like two, one to two each week um, since February. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're still recruiting participants? Yes, we are. We're going to recruit until June 1st. How how do people contact you if they want to participate? Okay, they can call me or they can go to our information page. I'll give you the information page first. It's www.yaacob19.info. And so we've, re- we've been referring to the study as YACO, Young Adults Against COVID-19. Or they can call me at 601-266-5434. Dr. Tracy Hayes is the project site lead and assistant professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. Thank you. Coming up, civil rights advocates call for a change in the jury selection process. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A coalition of civil rights advocates say Mississippi has a lack of diversity in criminal justice juries. The disparity, they attest, often begins with the selection process. Attorneys in a criminal case can utilize two types of juror strikes during the selection, legal cause strikes and peremptory strikes. Will Snowden, the founder of the Juror Project, an organization aiming to educate African Americans on the importance of jury service, says the latter can and has been abused to discriminate against jurors based on race or gender. Snowden says the Supreme Court addressed the practice in the 19th 1986 case, Batson v. Kentucky, but argues there are still loopholes. It's a case from 1986, and Mr. Batson was charged with theft-related crimes in Kentucky in 1986, and he, the, the charge was like uh, receiving stolen property or possession of stolen goods. And during the trial, the defense attorney uses some of their peremptory strikes, and the prosecution uses their peremptory strikes to remove all of the black people from the jury. 
And at the time, the uh, defense attorney objected, but there was no kind of legal framework in which to create a test to, de to decipher if, in fact, the prosecution was removing all the black people from the jury because they were trying to get an all-white jury to increase their chances of winning. So they create something that's called a Batson Challenge. And the Batson Challenge is designed to help uh, create a framework in which you can challenge an opposing party to prevent juror discrimination. And it's a three-step process. Step one, the attorney has to raise the objection. They have to say, Your Honor, I object to opposing counsel striking jurors number seven, nine, 11, and 12. All of those jurors are Asian American jurors. My client is an Asian American person, and I suspect that the opposing party is removing those people to increase their chances of winning. So step one is raise the objection. Step two, the party that's being challenged, the lawyer that's being challenged to say, judge, I'm not being sexist, I'm not being racist. The reason I removed this person from the jury is because of whatever reason they want to articulate. And so the second part of the Batson test is for the challenge party to provide an explanation. And then the third part is for the judge to decide whether or not that explanation was race or gender neutral. In Mississippi, Winona native Curtis Flowers was tried six times for the same crime for more than 20 years because prosecutors used peremptory strikes to remove people of color from the jury. Advocates like Snowden say having a diverse jury isn't about ensuring that defendants receive a non-guilty verdict, but rather they receive a fair and just trial. He says implicit biases also play a factor in the criminal justice system. He cites a study by the Perception Institute. The study looks at the ways in which black men and boys are overrepresented in the media. And there's the top three ways. The first is an overrepresentation and praise for athleticism. The second is an overrepresentation and praise for entertainment value. And the third is an overrepresentation and demonization for criminality. And so I want you all to think about how schemas get, you know, programmed into our brains. Let's imagine you're from a community or a neighborhood uh, that does not regularly interact with black men and boys. And so your primary exposure to black men and boys is through the media. And so your brain is going to be receiving this imprint of information that black men are athletes, that black men are entertainers, and that black men and boys are criminals. I then want you to imagine that that person that's not exposed to black men and boys that has had those uh, exposures via the media with those stereotypes shows up on a jury. And so when they look at the black man or the black boy at the defense table, their brain, in the unconscious way that you were able to recall what a triangle was, is going to start to make associations and say, well, that black boy at the table is not, you know, wearing a uniform. They're not, you know, holding a, a golf club, so they're not an athlete. Uh, they're going to say, well, not holding a, a cello or a microphone, they're not an entertainer. They are sitting at a defense table, so they're a criminal. And that association, that implicit association is happening before any of the lawyers begin the voir dire conversation. And so we have to be mindful of how implicit biases are being programmed into people's minds that's very detrimental to the fairness of our criminal legal system. 
Snowden advocates residents should embrace jury participation rather than avoid it. He notes concerns like child care and work limits, some residents' ability to serve, but argues juries can only become more diverse and fairer if people accept the important role they play. He says those that want to serve must also be aware of their own perspectives and how they can be interpreted during the selection process. I never want people to get on a jury and lie about their perspective, but I want you to be aware about the ways in which you share your perspective can actually be used against you, right? And so it's important to understand, like, if, if I were able to, if let's say that older black man who was the first to speak up were, were my father, I would make sure that my father knew that, you know, you have this perspective of the way in which the criminal legal system is addressing people with, uh, with drug problems or substance use issues. But just know that when you articulate that in court during jury selection, you're likely going to be removed. But if you believe that the criminal legal system should not continuing to criminalize substance use problems, then the best way for you to do that as a juror is to get on the jury, to sit in that deliberation room, to share your perspective with other jurors so they can also understand the way that you perceive the, the improper way of the criminal legal system addressing this health problem and vote not guilty. That's the way that you can change the problem of using the criminal legal system to address substance use issues. And so if I were able to share that with my father, you know, hopefully the next time they serve on a jury, they might not just, you know, be forthcoming with saying, you know, I can't vote guilty for this person because I don't believe in sending people with drugs to prison. You know, they would stay, they would, they would uh, you know, if they were asked that question, then they should, they should answer truthfully. But we, I want you to be mindful of the ways in which you share criticisms about the criminal legal system, although it might feel good in that moment to kind of streak speak truth to power, both the judges there, the prosecutor is there, and you know, the defense attorney will be there. Just know that that small moment of satisfaction is going to be a lot smaller than the satisfaction if you're able to sit on the jury and cast a not guilty vote, if that's in fact what you would want to do in that type of a case. Snowden says one way African-Americans can help address the lack of diversity on juries is to participate in the system when called on by the state and encouraging others to do the same. Coming up, a nearly $12 million award is aimed at creating con- conservation jobs on the Gulf Coast as part of the Deepwater Horizon recovery effort. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. For over a decade, the Gulf Coast has been in a persistent state of recovery following the Deepwater Horizon explosion and oil spill in April of 2010. Now, the Restore Council, a group created in the aftermath of the spill, is awarding $11.9 million to the Nature Conservancy and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to create more than 400 jobs over four years in efforts to continue the restoration process in and around the Gulf of Mexico.
Alex Littlejohn is with the Nature Conservancy. He says the award will help bring in new professionals committed to conserving the state's natural resources. Mississippi's been blessed with a number of just phenomenally important natural resources. Mississippi River, the Gulf Coast, the Pascagoula River, those areas. Well, a lot of work uh, associated with this program is basically the restoration and conservation of those natural habitats and due in part to the impact that we saw from Katrina and BP oil spill. Some of those opportunities have been established and we're trying to show individuals, hey, look, whether you're out there replanting vegetation on Round Island, building living shorelines, restoring oyster reefs, removing invasive species from the Pascagoula River, putting fire on the ground at Soda National, restoring habitat at Sand Hill Crane National Wildlife Refuge. These aren't just volunteer opportunities. You can make a career out of this. And that's what Gulf Corps does. It's take, it takes these individuals that really probably don't understand that that's an opportunity, gives them, some, gives them a foot in the door with some experiences that they can then take and say, hey, look, I've, I've enjoyed this. I want to go work in, in this field. And maybe there's opportunity with the Department of Interior, with Fish and Wildlife Service or the Forest Service or people like us, Nature Conservancy and other nonprofits, or even NOAA. And a lot of times those connections are made and you just establish a light bulb in these young individuals and they go on and, and have and will have established careers in these fields. So someone of the 400 that you'll be hiring over four years doesn't necessarily have to have an expert background in the field of conservancy? No, in terms of the field of conservation, they don't, we just want them to, we want to meet them where they are and we want to show them that this is an opportunity so they don't have to necessarily have any experience at all in this field, but when they leave, they will have a tremendous amount of experience and understand the avenues they can run as young individuals if this is something that they want to pursue. Are there still after effects from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that are adversely affecting the coast of Mississippi? Well, we've we've still got a lot of restoration and a long runway there that we're still working on. And there's going to be opportunities to do restoration uh, along the Gulf Coast for the next 10 to 20 years, giving the the money that's been set aside for restoration of those habitats impacted by the spill. So there's going to be this job creation and job opportunity component over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years that we want to bring people to that otherwise wouldn't have known that that's available to them. And and look, in Mississippi, the outdoor recreation or the conservation economy, if you will, generates about $8 billion in consumer spending. That in itself generates over $620 million in state and local revenues. So this is a true part of our economy in Mississippi you can stay here in Mississippi, you can work here in Mississippi, you can raise a family here in Mississippi and have a job and a career in this field with, if you desire that. And these opportunities like Gulf Corps uh, showcase that those investments can, can be made and that those opportunities are there for those individuals. It seems like for years now, after the, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, that, that settlement has produced year after year of money funding to restore. And this is, as you said, $11.9 million. Is more money coming? Well, there's going to be money for restoration via the BP oil spill settlement, like I said, for the next 10 to 20 years. And this, 
current $11.9 million for Gulf Core is um, is the second round that we've seen from the initial investment that was made in the program in 2017. And the results of the 2017 program were so successful that uh, Restore has decided to reinvest and, and keep the program running because it did it did produce um, 300 jobs, I believe, in the 2017 round. So uh, I hope that they continue to invest in this. And I'll be honest with you, this this is directly connected to the the push that we tried to make uh, via House Bill 1231 back in the session, just to show that investments in dedicated conservation investments in, in Mississippi's natural resources will not only yield jobs, but they will yield an impact, an economic impact that we've already seen. So, you know, this Gulf Core, all it does is, is provide evidence that that is the case. Let's get back to these jobs now. What age is you looking for young adults to to fill these jobs? Yeah, they're they're uh, young young professionals, if you will, uh, eighteen to twenty two year old, twenty five year old individuals out there trying to figure out what they're going to do with a career. And um, we found, you know, a lot of them pursue this field after they come through the Gulf Coast program. How long before the application process opens for those first jobs? Oh, I would imagine that's already established, and we've got a great team, the Gulf of Mexico team uh, for Nature Conservancy led by Jeff DeQuatro. They manage those with boots on the ground, uh, uh, partners in each of the individual states that are then recruiting uh, the young professionals in the Gulf Corps. Do you know where people can find more information about the jobs being offered? Yeah, you can You can find the Gulf Corps. If you just Google Gulf Corps program, uh, at nature.org, uh, you'll find out some more about that. If individuals want to look on our website, they can dig a little further into it. Alex Littlejohn is the state director of the Nature Conservancy in Mississippi. Thank you so much for giving us this great Thank information. You. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.